Good morning, church. Uh, let's go ahead and bow once more in prayer uh, and go to God to ask him for help to understand his word rightly. If you could pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your living and active word. Lord, we thank you that from it we learn of the mercy and grace that you extend to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as we seek to unpack the riches of your word, that by your spirit you would shape and mold us more into the image of your son. Uh, Father, may we leave this assembly more in love with Jesus uh, than when we walked in. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God uh, created marriage to be an unbreakable covenant between him, one man, and one woman. In this lifelong commitment, there is safety uh, in knowing that no matter what comes your way, uh, sickness or health, uh, poverty or riches, disaster or celebration, your spouse is there for you, uh, committed to loving you and seeking your best. In the New Testament, marriage is used as an illustration between Christ and his church, the bride. In the Old Testament, God used the image of marriage to explain his love and commitment uh, toward Israel. An example, Hosea 2, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. But what happened when God's people broke covenant with their faithful God? Uh, what happened when the nation of Israel uh, rebelled? Notice how the Lord continues to use this image of marriage in Jeremiah verse, chapter 3, verse 20. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. How would God, uh, the faithful groom, treat his adulterous wife Israel, the nation that he had set his affection upon? What would he do? How, how would he respond well, we find an answer in our text for this morning, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 20, and an answer that we might not expect. This morning, uh, we begin a short series through the first section of the book of Isaiah, a book that highlights Israel's wickedness and God's righteousness, Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. Uh, the book of Isaiah is one that, that screams judgment. But if we listen carefully, we hear whispers of mercy. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1 to 20, on page 566 in the Pew Bibles. That's 566. As is always the case, if you do not have a copy, a physical copy of God's Word uh, for yourself to read at home, by all means, take that one as a gift uh, from us to you. We want nothing more than for you to read and understand and know this God of mercy that we're going to be talking about this morning. So starting in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, 
children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, rebellion and judgment. Necessary themes as a holy God interacts with a sinful people. But as we walk through this passage this morning, uh, my hope is that we would be left marveling at God's mercy towards us in Christ. OBC family, what I want us to see today is this, and if you're taking notes, uh, here's our main idea for this morning. Even in the midst of rampant rebellion, our God offers real redemption. Uh, even in the midst of rampant rebellion, our God offers real redemption. As we study Isaiah's vision this morning, we'll see this truth in three spiritual realities. Not only true to those in Isaiah's day, but also true to us today. So reality number one, I'll give you all three. Reality number one, a picture of rebellion. A picture of rebellion. That's verses one to nine. Reality number two, a call to repentance. Verses 10 to 17. And reality number three, a promise of redemption. A promise of redemption. That's verses 18 to 20. So beginning with this picture of rebellion, in verse 1, we find the context for our passage, and really the entire book of Isaiah. Uh, the author is Isaiah, and he's a prophet. That's why we see the word vision right there. 
Isaiah received a vision or a message from God. Uh, Prophets in the Bible were were most basically messengers. Uh, They spoke words from God that reflected God's concern for his people, which is further supported by the phrase, the Lord has spoken. Uh, We see some variation of that phrase five times in these 20 verses this morning. So Isaiah being a prophet means that this book is prophecy. And the purpose of Old Testament prophecy was to uh, spiritually interpret the histories, uh, the first 17 books of the Bible, so Genesis to Esther. It's much like in the New Testament, uh, the way that the epistles interpret the Gospels and and Acts. Now, regarding the genre, uh, this prophecy is brought to us in the form of poetry, uh, which means a lot of imagery and, and repetition is used to make a particular point. Uh, these images, they are mostly symbolic. But what we'll find in our text this morning is that the unimaginable nature of Israel's rebellion is, is so heinous that the line between symbolism and reality gets blurred. Uh, some of the images that we'll see this morning were, were literal events in Israel's history. We also find in verse 1 the, the when and the, the whom of this prophecy. You see there, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, This was a prophecy meant for the southern kingdoms of Judah, and it was given during the span of the reign of these four kings. But why? Uh, Why the need for this prophetic warning? Well, history makes clear to us that Israel had forsaken their covenant-keeping God again. Under the threat of invasion from the Assyrians, uh, Judah had given itself over to the worshiping of of foreign gods, uh, false and empty religious and hypocritical practices, and and they were overlooking the marginalized of their day. Uh, Judah was unfaithful, uh, guilty of breaking covenant with Yahweh, and now Isaiah had been sent as a messenger from God to warn Judah of its corrupt ways. That if they were to continue to rebel against their covenant, this would come at a cost unless they repent, unless they turn back to their first love, the Holy One of Israel. This is the backdrop. Uh, This is the the catalyst for Isaiah's heavenly indictment. He continues in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Like a, a skilled lawyer, in a, in a courtroom, Isaiah calls for the cosmic witness of heaven and earth to hear, to listen as God brings charges against his people. And this is not the only time in Israel's rebellious history that creation was called upon to witness his judgment. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, Moses uses these exact same words to highlight the seriousness with which God will respond if Israel continues to go on about their idolatry. Moses states it plainly, they will be utterly destroyed. Hear, uh, give ear, uh, listen. We see this idea repeated again in verse 10. Uh, But right away, we see what Judah wasn't doing and what we ought to do if we are going to obey God's commands. Obedience begins with hearing. Obedience begins with hearing exactly what you all are doing right here, right now. 
but not just hearing anything, right? The text says very clearly, the Lord has spoken. By God's grace, with this sermon, I aim to unpack for you God's words. We must hear and listen to God's words if we are going to obey God. Not only on Sunday uh, during a sermon, but also through the week, right? We must spend time reading, studying, meditating on God's words. By them, we grow in our understanding of who God is and what he requires of us. So then that begs the question, how are you doing with hearing God's word? You know, there could be uh, several reasons for a particular sin struggle, but a, a good basic question to begin with is, have I been hearing God's words? If the answer is no, I would encourage you to start there. Right? 2 Timothy 3 tells us that God's words teach us. They reprove us. They correct us and train us for righteousness. To neglect the word is to neglect this training. Right? Obedience begins with hearing. Isaiah begins his indictment by depicting Judah's rebellion using three different kinds of images. So the second half of verse 2 to verse 4, that which is natural versus unnatural. Verses 5 and 6, this imagery of a physical body. And then verse 7 to 9, this imagery of land. So let's start with that which is natural versus unnatural. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The children of Israel, God's covenant people that he loved, that he chose as his treasured possession. It's these children that God brought up, that he raised, that have rebelled against him. They had seen his miracles, right? They had seen his faithfulness, yet their rebellion, it, it makes no sense. By comparison, even lowly farm animals naturally understand how to submit and obey. The ox knows its owner. The donkey knows where to go to find its food, the master's crib. In other words, the feeding trough, right? The master's feeding trough. But Israel, the nation that Yahweh had set his affections upon, rebels against his loving kindness. They do not know. They do not understand. They don't obey. They break covenant. Verse 4 begins with the words, ah. Uh, in some translations, you might see the word woe there used. Uh, this word is meant to portray pain, uh, grief, uh, sadness. It's, it's more akin to that of losing a loved one. And so, similarly to an earthly parent, Lord's heart breaks. He is grieved by his children's rebellion. Iniquity, evildoers, uh, corruption. To summarize, Israel is depraved, and their depravity results in forsaking and despising the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. This was Isaiah's most frequent title for God. It's used 25 times throughout the book of Isaiah. It's meant to highlight the essence of who God is. He is holy. He is set apart. He is entirely other. And Isaiah, he, he knew this firsthand. If a familiar uh, a chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, we're given a vision of the throne room of God. Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, 
and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These fiery, angelic beings humble themselves before God, and it's not grace or mercy that they are crying out. It's, it's holy. Three times over to emphasize who God is. He is holy. He is morally pure. He is unlike anything or anyone else. The one who the angels bow down to. The one who the angels couldn't even look at. Israel stands in rebellion against. And using the title Holy One of Israel here, Isaiah is helping us to see the heinousness of Israel's rebellion. This rebellion is unnatural. But Isaiah continues his indictment, again, using the imagery of a physical body in verses 5 and 6. I've heard it said that uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Uh, when we see something insane, a natural question to ask is, why? Right? Why do they keep on doing what they're doing? Well, Isaiah, he's doing the exact same thing right here. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebellion? A sinful rebellion is insane. It's, it puts the sinner at odds with the God of the universe, and it harms the sinner themselves. Not only do we see the insanity of sin, but we see the depth of this sin as well. The whole head is sick or injured. The whole heart is faint or afflicted. This sinful rebellion, it penetrates deep. Uh, even the heart is desperately sick. Every part of the body, head to toe, there is no soundness, there is no health. This sinful rebellion, it's, it's like untreated bruises and sores and wounds. Uh, they get infected and they, they spread throughout the entire body. Friends, here we learn something about sin and obedience. First, Sin is most fundamentally an offense against God. That is the biggest problem that sin creates for us. It is an offense against the God of heaven and earth. Second, sin is stupid. Sin is stupid because at the end of the day, it harms the sinner as well. And then third, sin is not simply superficial or just doing bad things. Our hearts are depraved. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our sinful actions stem from a wicked heart. We cannot clean ourselves up. The situation is dire. But Isaiah, he moves from this image of the body to this image of land in verses 7 to 9. Countries, cities, land, all initially signs of God's blessing now destroyed overthrown, besieged. Again, Israel's rebellion has only led to their own downfall. Uh, this is an area of prophecy that literally came true. Assyria did indeed eventually invade the southern kingdom and send Judah, the daughter of Zion, into exile. And then lastly, the, the booth and the lodge. These are words here that are synonymous with a shelter or, or a hut, images that were meant to convey a, a broken down uh, uninhabited temporary structures left to deteriorate. Israel's rebellion against God would lead to their literal deterioration of the southern kingdom. Friends, there are real life consequences to rebelling against 
the God of heaven and earth. Uh, for Judah, it was the ravaging of their land and the, and the eventual sending of the people into exile. But as we read all of Scripture, we find that not only is God just and he will repay, but he's also merciful. He is long-suffering. He doesn't leave his people without hope. And we see a glimmer of that hope in verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In the midst of chaos and rebellion, in the midst of corruption and iniquity, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, shows mercy. He withholds a punishment that is justly deserved. Judah deserved to be utterly and completely destroyed, uh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities in Israel's history that had given themselves over to sin and disobedience to such a degree that judgment rained down on them in the literal form of sulfur and fire. Complete destruction. This is what Judah deserved for their rebellion against the Almighty God, yet he shows them mercy in the form of a few survivors. The mention of survivors here would be a literal foreshadowing of Judah's future. Because of God's mercy, one day in the distant future, he would indeed send worshipers again into the land of Judah. There would again be people who would worship the one true God there, a glimmer of hope. Church family, how often do you dwell on or think about God's mercy? The we, in verse 9, spiritually speaking, includes us. Because of our sin against God, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, destroyed. Uh, what we have earned for our sin is death, eternal separation from God the Father. But God, in his mercy, has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. Church, we should praise him for how long-suffering, how patient he has been with us. God's mercy should produce humility in our hearts. When we truly understand that at our core we are depraved and sinful, and that our sin in God's eyes makes us public enemy number one, only then can we begin to see and understand the magnitude of mercy that God has extended to us in Christ. Mercy, withholding a punishment justly deserved. And the particular mercy that we see here is that of preservation. Preservation. OBC family, not only did God preserve a remnant back then, but he's doing the same thing now. Friends, the church, uh, those who see their sin, uh, confess and repent of their sin, and turn to him in saving faith in Jesus Christ, are set apart and preserved for his glory. A sign that we have indeed received this mercy is that we extend this mercy to others. Friends, in our sin, we have offended the maker of heaven and earth, and he has shown us mercy. Who are we to withhold mercy, to withhold grace, to withhold forgiveness to others? If you, have not, if you do not forgive, at best, you have a distorted view of the gospel. At worst, you may not be a Christian. 
But for the person here who has not trusted in Christ for salvation, I want you to know that God, at this very moment, is being merciful to you as well. He is preserving your physical life. He is being patient with you. The Lord is giving you time as you breathe to repent. He is being kind, and his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Don't wait for tomorrow. If you've not trusted in Christ, repent of your sins and trust in him today. Because, then, friends, there will be a day when this persevering and preserving patience eventually runs out. And the Bible makes clear that after that comes judgment. Uh, Repent. Turn away from your sinful behavior and turn toward Christ in saving faith. To change one's mind and to agree with God. This is fundamentally what we see Isaiah calling Judah to in verses 10 to 17. Spiritual reality number two, a call to repent. God hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. He will not put up with those who draw near to him with their mouth and honor him with their lips but their hearts remain far from him. In verse 10, Isaiah takes his Sodom and Gomorrah reference just a step further, and he flat out calls Judah Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 10, Isaiah takes again that step, and he says in in his indictment, he begins to march through Judah's hypocritical and empty religious practices. And then in verse 11, we see the, the ineffectiveness of Judah's many sacrifices. Rams, fattened calves, bulls, lambs, goats, they mean, they mean nothing to the Lord. Right? He's had enough. He will no longer accept these offerings. And then in verse 12, uh, we see their disregard for how God has prescribed uh, for them to enter into his presence, into the temple. In, a, in, in uh, Exodus, the book of Exodus, the Lord is clear with Israel about when and, and what appearing before him should look like. Yet in verse 12, we see that they, they trample his courts. They enter whenever they want to. They, they disregard his commands. Verse 13 and 14, the language gets even stronger. The Lord just says, stop. Right? These offerings are useless. They are an abomination. He, he hates them. He even gets a little specific here. The new moon and Sabbath offerings meant to be given at certain times of the month and of the week, he will no longer Put up with these empty religious practices. He states it plainly, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, I will no longer put up with your hypocrisy. You perform these religious acts and then go about willingly living in iniquity, willingly living in sin. Verse 15, we come to the end of the rope. As they lift their hands in prayer, the Lord will not respond. He refuses to look at them or listen to them. This is complete rejection of their false religion. Their hands are covered with blood. They are guilty of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be what they are not. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be what they are not. It can look like professing belief in something and then living the opposite way. Or, or looking down on others when we know ourselves we are, we are flawed. Uh, the Bible clearly calls hypocrisy a sin, an offense against God, which is why we see such strong language here in these verses. But why such strong language against hypocrisy? Why does God so strongly oppose 
hypocrisy. Here's three reasons. Reason number one, God hates hypocrisy because it takes advantage of his commands and uses them for self-advancement. It takes advantage of his commands and uses them for self-advancement. The hypocrite wants blessings from God right, and the approval of man, but without actually turning their hearts to God and submitting their lives to his rule. Uh, think about the, the Pharisees of, of Jesus' day. They want to follow the law's prescriptions for worship, but only out of tradition, right? Only out of superstition to, to look good in the eyes of others. They don't want true change, true submission to God's will. Reason number two that God hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy because it leads others astray. It leads others astray. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The Pharisees were fundamentally trusting in their own works for salvation. And in so doing, they rejected Jesus, the only way of salvation. And then with their influence and with their power, they hindered common people from coming to Jesus and trusting in him as well. Friends, God hates hypocrisy because it points people to their own works as a means of righteousness rather than Christ's work as a means of righteousness. And then reason number three, God hates hypocrisy because it leads to spiritual death. Finally, it leads to spiritual death. Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In that verse, uh, Jesus is speaking to the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. Outwardly, they appear holy. They appear clean, like they, all, they have it all together. Uh, but inwardly, they are spiritually dead. The, the spiritual charade that they put up, it, it blinds them of the very thing that they need to depend on Christ. And in the end, it leads to spiritual death. The hypocrite fails to see that the Christian life is less about what you do or, or don't do and more about ch the change of the heart. Right? Hypocrisy misses the heart, and God wants the heart, not merely your actions. Now, it's important to understand what hypocrisy is not. So I've just given us what it is and why God hates it, but we also need to understand what it is not. Hypocrisy is not the disparity between what we are and what we long to be. Right? Living in a fallen world, there will always be a distance there. It is not the gap between what we want to do and what we actually do. Again, our, our sin nature will prevent perfection. Rather, as one author put it, hypocrisy is the gap between public persona and private character. Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what you preach, appearing outwardly righteous to others while actually being full of uncleanness and self-indulgence. So then how exactly do we fight? Right? If, if we're prone to sin, if we're prone to hypocrisy, how exactly do we fight against it? Here are a few ways in which we can fight against hypocrisy. We fight fear with the truths of God's word. We fight fear with the truths of God's word. Often what drives us to be hypocritical is the fear of others, 
and what they might do. We're worried about what they might think about us, right? So we put up a facade and we try to look or live in a certain way so that we're accepted by others. All the while, knowing that that's not who we truly are. Galatians 1.10, we studied it a few weeks back. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We fight this fear by growing in our fear of the Lord, by delighting in the Lord. As our view of God grows, the opinion of man shrinks, closing the gap between what we actually are and what others perceive us to be. Second, we fight hypocrisy by practicing confession and transparency. Pastor Tim led us in a prayer of confession. We practice it in our service. Lord willing, we practice that in prayer throughout the week as well. We fight by practicing confession and transparency. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is not optional in the Christian life. Confession of our sins to the Lord in prayer and to fellow church members, it brings down the walls of hypocrisy and allows fellow members to see you and know you for who you truly are. Not for the purposes of judging you, no. For the purposes of your spiritual good, for discipling. Right? OBC family, one of the primary means of growth in Christ's likeness for us to grow, it's the church. Right? We do ourselves no favors by hiding or acting like we aren't, we aren't somebody that we actually are. Right? Hypocrisy prevents the very thing that we need, sanctification, to be made more like Christ. So, who really knows you in this church? Your joys and your sorrows, uh, your sin struggles and your temptations, your spiritual gifts even. We fight hypocrisy by living transparently. And then lastly, number three, we fight hypocrisy by remembering and rehearsing the gospel. By remembering and rehearsing the gospel. At the end of the day, hypocrisy is a heart problem. The heart's affections have not truly been captivated by God. Instead of Sunday being an opportunity to grow in our love for Christ that impacts every other aspect of our lives, Sundays are just a show. The gospel alone penetrates this facade and addresses our greatest need to be made right with the God of heaven and earth. The gospel humbles us. It leaves no room for the pride required to maintain hypocrisy. The more we meditate and, and marinate on the glorious truths of the gospel, the more we are moved to repent of the sin of hypocrisy, which is what we see God calling Judah to in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Friends, this is a call to change, not from one evil deed to another, right, but to turn from that which is evil and toward that which is good. For repentance to be genuine, we have to begin with knowing exactly what we're repenting of, right? In Judah's case, it was this hypocrisy that surrounded their empty religious practices. And then, after we acknowledge or confess our sin, we begin to make real and practical steps to fight against the sin. Wash, clean, remove, cease to do evil. Real repentance shows itself in a real fight. 
Real repentance shows itself in a real fight. Ephesians 4.22, Paul charges the Ephesian church, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off. Uh, this requires action, resistance, fighting, striving, struggling. Christian, genuine repentance will demand something of you. Genuine repentance will demand something of you. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, real repentance requires that the old man die daily. But putting off is only step one. Uh, we must turn from evil, but we also must learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, uh, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. These are the fruits of a genuinely repentant heart. This is what Judah was lacking. God himself is good, therefore he expects his people to do good. God himself is just, therefore he expects his people to do justice. God himself cares for the most vulnerable, the orphan, the widow. Therefore he expects his people to care for the most vulnerable. Real repentance begins by putting off, but it continues by putting on. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Practically, uh, this looks like seeking God in his word and through the examples of fellow believers. The arena for putting on Christ is the church. This is where that happens, right here. The arena for putting on Christ is the church. The best examples of mothers and fathers, executives and shift workers, college students and teenagers who are seeking to put on Christ and grow together are right here in the church. Come alongside one another in discipling relationships as we seek to together put on Christ. You know, one thing I'd want to be very clear about here is that repentance is not a work that we do to earn salvation. Repentance is not a work that we do to earn salvation. Repentance itself is a gift from God and is only possible by his grace. So we must regularly pray and ask God, to help us to see our sin, to turn from our sin, and to grow in holiness. Now, up to this point in our text, Isaiah, the, the skilled lawyer, has laid out a case that makes Judah's guilt overwhelmingly clear. At every turn, they have offended God, and it would only be just that the verdict rendered be guilty. Death sentence. But to the shock and awe of heaven and earth, we find in verses 18 to 20 an offer of free pardon, a chance at new life. Spiritual reality number three, a promise of redemption, a promise of redemption. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Church family, verses 18 and 19 should blow our minds. The Holy One of Israel, Yahweh, the God of angel armies, the one who is high and lifted up, invites wicked, sinful Judah to come to him. The God who in verse 15 said he will not listen to their empty prayers is now turning his ear toward Judah 
in an act of pure grace. Those who were lost in sin, he now beckons to come near to him, to return to their first love. Friends, this imagery of of sin as scarlet and red like crimson, it's meant to highlight the, the permanent and penetrating nature of sin. It's impossible to be removed. It's impossible to be washed away. It's, it's indwelling. But then this image that's held up in contrast to it, this image of white as snow and wool. Uh, these are examples of that which is naturally white, symbols of forgiveness, symbols of removal of sin. And then what I really want you to notice is this word shall, right? Repeated in verse 18. Y'all, this is a promise. This is a promise. God is promising that the immovable stain of sin will be removed. It will be made white as snow. He's promising not only to deal with the stain of sin, but also with the nature from which it comes, the depraved heart. The sin of prideful rebellion, the sin of hypocrisy, uh, the sin of overlooking the marginalized, it will indeed be forgiven. But the question is how? How? Well, Isaiah and Judah didn't know exactly what that would look like in their day. But the call to them was to look forward in faith. Uh, That's in part what the sacrificial system was meant for. Those sacrifices reminded Israel of their need for forgiveness of sins. And it pointed them to the final sacrifice. But for us, uh, Christians under the new covenant, we know exactly how God has wiped away the stain of sin through the substitutionary death of another. This is the good news of the gospel, that a holy God created all things for his glory. Uh, But beginning with Adam and Eve, we have all chosen to rebel against this loving God by disobeying his loving commands. Rather than give him the worship that he is due, we have chosen to live for our own glory. We have sinned against God, and that sin has left a crimson stain unable to be washed away. And because of our sin, we cannot dwell in the presence of this holy God. Our sin has made us just objects of his wrath. But God, in his mercy and grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Never once did he sin in word or in thought or indeed. He lived a holy and pure life, a life that was white as snow. But despite his perfection, Jesus' life, it culminated in him being falsely accused and hung on a Roman cross to die. In going to the cross, Jesus took on the full wrath of God the Father, the wrath that you and I deserve for our sins. After Christ died, his body was buried in a tomb. But three days later, Christ rose from that tomb, victorious over sin and death. The resurrection was evidence that God the Father had indeed accepted this sacrifice for sinners. After Christ rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven where he currently sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And now, now Christ extends life, new hearts, to all who repent and believe. This is how the stain of sin is made white as snow through the atoning sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
verse 18, is a promise. A promise that if you repent of your sins and put your trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. They will no longer be counted against you. On the cross of Christ, he shed his blood, his righteous blood, and in so doing, he covered our sins. All who believe this good news are given new hearts, hearts that slowly begin to conform to the likeness of Christ, hearts that, as verse 19 says, are willing and obedient and will one day in glory eat the good of the land. But Isaiah, he doesn't end there. Uh, Verse 20 is one final warning. For those who have not put their trust in Christ and repented of their sins, friends, there is a, a judgment coming if you continue to refuse this gift of grace. For Judah, his story tells us the invading Assyrian armies literally wiped out the southern kingdom. This was the Lord's judgment on them for refusing to repent. For us today, the Bible makes clear that this looks like eternal separation from God the Father for eternity in hell. But as I mentioned earlier, God is merciful. He's merciful with us. He's merciful with you, friend, if you've not turned from your sins and put your trust in him. It's no accident that you're sitting here in this church right now listening to this sermon. Friend, while there is still time, turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and believe in the gospel. And if you do, God has promised that though your sins are like scarlet, in Christ they shall be as white as snow. OBC family, our God has been so kind to us. We, are, we were once like Judah, lost in our sin and rebellion. Uh, but God, in his grace, has extended a mercy to us in Christ that we could not earn. May we never move past this mercy. May our hearts always be encouraged as we remember that even in the midst of rampant rebellion, our God offers real redemption. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for not treating us as our sins deserve. We thank you for the gift of repentance and for the new hearts we now have in Christ. Hearts that both receive and extend mercy. As we leave this place and go about this week, by your spirit, cause us to remember your mercy and live in light of your mercy. We ask these things for the good of your church and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.